Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route. It's a red shirt Friday, Rural Route, if you can't tell. This is the program where we gather every day at this time. And what we do is we connect rural and urban. And I think we're going to do as well today as we've ever done in that regard, because my friend from Medford, Massachusetts, not to be confused with Boston, (laughs) Diane Sullivan, how have you been? Busy, Trent, um, but, you know, enjoying the ride. How have you been? Uh, I'm in under lockdown. I can't go anywhere. I can only leave my house in case of an emergency. Oh. I'm I'm kidding. Okay. Well. <laughs> you were falling for that, so I thought I better. Well, I'm kidding, Diane. Well, I was not falling for it, but, you know, it's kind yeah. of people's norm sometimes with this virus, but. I'm happy to report today that I can walk outside of my home without a mask um, because we have been under a mask mandate. And today that is being lifted for when we're outdoors. So I'm very happy about that. We have never had a mask mandate in Nebraska. Just saying. <laughs> just thought I'd brag a bit. Hey, all these red shirts looking so good. You brought a friend today. You had an idea, Diane. What's your idea? Yes, well, Trent, I am so pleased to introduce you to my good friend Tamika. Mm-hmm. Tamika and I actually, I'll I'll give Tamika the floor, the mic to introduce herself. Um, but we were introduced through the work that we do for the Center for Law and Social Policy. Tamika and I both belong to a growing group of national advocates and activists. Those of us with lived experience in a variety of things, but mostly poverty and related issues. And so Tamika and I are part of an amazing team that has been working to really help uh, nonprofit groups, the government, um, anybody that's involved in poverty, if you're a researcher, an academic, um, just really helping folks to understand the value of gauging, uh, engaging us, those of us with lived experience and lived expertise on these matters. So um, Tamika, it's so good to see you. I'm so glad to make this introduction. Um, so if you, you know, why don't you go ahead and, and tell Trent and his audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, um, I'm Tamika. Hey, guys. Tamika Moore. Um, I'm owner and CEO of VisionWorks. I do youth empowerment for the most part. And um, I have another nonprofit called Urban Masterpiece, where I concentrate on hunger and homelessness prevention. So um, I really like to uh, bridge the gap, which is what I hope to do today. I do care very much about hunger work. And um, from what I understand, there is a huge disconnect between the vegan or vegetarian community and ranchers or, um, you know, uh, people that are involved in agriculture. So I hope to, to come shed some light. I'm a vegan myself. Uh, but I do not um, discourage agriculture or keeping livestock or animals in agriculture. So uh, hopefully I can help with some understanding and bridging the gap. All right. So Tamika, before we get to the the vegan word, um, uh, Diane knows that I'm absolutely passionate about youth programs, youth leadership, creating opportunities. Vision works. How do you do? Who are the young people? How do you identify them? And what exactly do you accomplish? Um, so I do. Uh, I do vision board parties. Help them to 
realize that everyone is a visionary. Uh, I deal with a lot of poverty-stricken areas. So a lot of young people that are in poverty don't have the opportunity to go to other programs that are funded. I fund everything myself, um, Mm -hmm. which can be a little difficult sometimes. (laughs) But um, I didn't have anyone there for me as a young person. So I want to provide that for other young people. I don't want them to feel, especially as an LGBTQIA plus individual myself, I know that struggle as a young person. I know what it's like to not have people there for you to understand you. So I try to give back to the community in that way and be there for them. So these kids, they come from a certain region of the country. Is it all via the uh, virtual or how does that work? Well, it didn't start that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> the COVID, uh, COVID uh, has had quite a, Moved a everybody that large way. effect, yes, yeah. on what I do. Unfortunately, I like to be in person. I like to feel the energy of the room. I like to give them my energy. So it, I, uh, being doing visual, uh, virtual vision board parties is uh, what I have to do now. <laughs> but so it's not quite the same. I can't wait to get to see him in person again. But. Oh. Um, anything that I can do to help them. Is... What is a vision board party? Vision board party. So I get a What's whole a bunch vision of vision board, that concept. Okay. Yeah, right. So get a whole bunch of stuff and uh, let them make their own uh, vision boards and then talk to them about it, have them talk to each other, ask questions and, you know, stuff. But I also do success training, teaching them uh, to appreciate their journey. A lot of them are troubled youth. Mm-hmm. So they're going through a lot of stuff that they don't understand why they're going through you know as a young person you don't know why you can't eat you don't know why your parents fighting all the time you don't know you don't understand the stresses that are going on around you but it stresses you out too and you still got to go to school and deal with all these things so um i try to help them understand that it's part of their journey to appreciate the journey that it gets greater later you know put the work in and you know, all of that kind of good stuff. I, I don't mean to be hung up on this, but I'm still trying That's to right. get the, the the vision. Is it their vision of the future? What they think they want to be a part of? How they want to shape their own future? What's what's the vision? Aspect? Yeah, all of that, all of that. So, where huh. do you want to go? How do you want to get there? Where do you see yourself? Right. If you want a mansion and six ducks. And, you know, a, a BMW or whatever. I mean, what kid not, doesn't want a mansion and six ducks? I mean, that's just a given. That Beyond part, that. My daughter wants a castle. So <laughs> she wants a castle and a limo, apparently. So, I mean, that's true. But I want them to believe that they can achieve anything. You really can. The opportunity is there. Uh, it might be harder for some people depending on their background where they're coming from Mm -hmm. but as long as you have a vision you can make things happen like i come from nothing and um i certainly don't have nothing now so i mean anybody can do anything and i want them to believe that at a young age you know because as a young person if i believed in myself if i believed that i could achieve things i probably would be a lot further um a lot sooner (laughs) so and that's, Diane, that's what I wanted to get at because you, you know, FFA programs, you know, the team purebred program and that, and really youth athletics are no different. What Tamika just described is how do we find a way to instill confidence in young people to accomplish what it is that their vision is? Right. And, you know, Tamika, prior to our meeting and jumping into these conversations about agriculture, I had the opportunity to travel uh, numerous times to go out to the Midwest. 
And one thing that most impresses me about the entire agriculture industry is their investment in youth development. And, um, you know, again, I've, I've been on the, the fairgrounds, the Missouri State Fairgrounds, and alongside, you know, 700 FFA members. That's formerly Future Farmers of America. Um, so, you know, these young adults who are, you know, just, I don't know, it's just amazing. And I think that there's something there to be replicated. Like when I think about how we go about our work, Tamika, mm -hmm. I, I think back to how often, you know, these... Uh, the meetings, these convenings that I've been with these young adults and how they've been run and what we can learn from that to apply to what it is that we're doing. Um, right. Uh, Tamika, one final thing about you, then we'll go to a break and come back and talk about diet. Maybe. Uh, how did you get, how did you get involved originally? What was there some impetus to say, this is what I need to do. Um. So I was, 18 or 19 or, or somewhere around that age. And I actually, okay. I've always wanted to help young people. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the, when I tell you on the edge, like depressed, really torn up as a young person, I, I really was. And then I ended up being homeless for a long time. And it took a lot to get out of that. <clears throat> um, I ended up meeting this, this young boy. He was probably like, I think he was like 12 or 11. Super like, um, tough little guy, you know, he swore he was in a gang and he was real thugged out and like real crazy. And I thought it, it I thought he was cute. I was like, Oh, you're cute. <laughs> you're not tough, but it's cool <laughs> that you think you are, but you know, <laughs> so, so I got to like spending time with him and I really started to, to care for him and what went on with him. He was actually adopted, not adopted. He was in a foster care with this, this lady that sure. whatever, um, he was actually chasing my niece at the time. So we were like, you bad little, you know, and yeah. then <laughs> ended we up getting to know him and why he acted that way. He, he was in the street with his brother hmm. um, before he was, you know, picked up and put into the foster programs and stuff like that. So um, he had a lot going on. I ended up putting him in a basketball program and I was like struggling at the time. I didn't have any money, but I wanted to do something for him to get him to change his mindset and put, you know, give him some discipline and put him in something constructive. And uh, it was really rewarding. Um, but that started my work. I started doing, um, I started speaking at women's shelters. Uh, I started speaking at, in youth programs, Big Brother, Big Sister, all that kind of stuff. And I really love it. There's nothing Make more. Like Diane Sullivan, we have to take a break. Arise, Oops. USA. It's all about the resurrection of the nation. We'll be back with more Roll Route after this. Welcome back. Roll Route, Trent Lewis alongside Diane Sullivan. On a red shirt Friday, everybody looking fabulous in a red shirt. Tamika Moore wearing a red shirt with a lot of noise on it. What's it say, Tamika? <laughs> Let's settle this like adults. Yeah. I feel like... Other than actually throwing hands, I think this is the oldest way yeah. <laughs> in America to settle All things. right. I don't know about the message, but I like the billboard, so it's all good. <laughs> ah. uh, Tamika, mm -hmm. you, uh, you you brought up the vegan aspect. Why are you a vegan? Um, so what made me want to do this is actually uh, empathy, sympathy, and empathy for animals. 
in America uh, specifically. <clears throat> now, I want to let everybody know that is watching, don't shoot the bridge, right? So I don't know as much as everybody <laughs> else does coming into this, okay? So um, I do plan on doing more research. Um, I would love to hear feedback and questions, and I'd love to be more involved with this and more educated. But um, as it is, the the manufacturing of meat in America is what made me want to be vegan. Like I, I can't, I know that mammals, right? Like us, not even just talking about chickens. Chickens, of course, aren't mammals, but calves, you know, cows, pigs, and so on. Mammals tend to have more feeling than other animals do, you know, so. Did you just say chickens but, don't have feelings? Oh, they might. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> I've, okay. never, I've never talked to a chicken. But, <laughs> but you have talked to a pig. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I mean, it's a possibility. You never know. I have been to. Uh, I'm talking you know, about like four-legged pigs. Four -legged pigs here. I want a pig, actually, myself. So <laughs> well, I can I make that so happen. <laughs> All right. So obviously right away, I need to jump to the part where you specify in America. So you somehow yeah. think that animal production in America is different than around the world. Well, okay. So from what I've learned, right. And, and <clears throat> this is from doing research online, of course, but also in other countries, being in other countries and seeing how they treat the animals um, and how they appreciate their lives and they use every part of the animal and all this kind of stuff. It really, they don't have, from what I've seen, right from different countries that I what I know I've not seen the type of manufacturing that I've seen in certain documentaries and stuff like that that I've seen in the United States you know as far as like dairy farms are concerned or um <clears throat> chicken uh farms uh farming what, what, what and, country um, would you be referencing in particular I'm curious about where you get this information so Japan um you know, uh, countries, d different places like that, Japan and um, Japan is, Asian. you know, that Japan is completely dependent upon other countries for their food, correct? They would starve if it no. were not for countries like the, they're our number one no, I, customer, by the way, in terms of the amount of meat that we sell. We sell more dollars worth of meat to Japan than any other country in the world because they cannot produce enough to feed themselves. That's interesting. No, I didn't know that. See, that's why I stepped into this. Like, I don't know everything. Yeah. And and yeah. I'll just also tell you, not being braggadocious, but because I've done that's it, um, you happen to be visiting with a guy who's pr provided daily care for one million animals in my lifetime. And that was a short 55 years, Diane. <laughs> so I, no, I'm, I I'm, more, I'm more than willing to answer any question that you have, but in my 55 years of caring for animals, I'll, I'll just take you back to the, a very early conversation. I think I was about 12. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation at a fair where we were exhibiting pigs with a guy named uh, Jack Hammond. Jack Hammond was probably 50 plus at the time. I would have been 12 or 15. And I was talking about having pigs, not being a part of a gang like your 12-year-old kid, just just everybody's got to have something they aspire to at that age, right? You, you know your own world. And I remember, and then we're talking about, Tamika, we're, we're talking about about 1978, okay? 
And that was just the time that animal agriculture in the United States was starting to progress into more confinement, more controlled mm-hmm. facilities. And I remember sitting on the show box, having a conversation with this guy saying, you know, I just love these animals being outdoors and taking care of them the way that we do. I, I would never want to put my animals in confinement. I remember having that conversation. And here I am today, 50 years later. Well, from that moment, it'd be about 45 years later, telling you that I have learned that it's the absolute best way to minimize the stress of an animal. Because my job as a a stockman, my job as an animal owner is basically just one thing. How do I protect the animal? And in protecting the animal, we protect them from predators. The number one predator, by the way, is Mother Nature, not coyotes. How do I make sure that they have adequate feed and water on a daily basis? Because at the end of the day, if this animal is stressed in any way, shape, or form, it's number one, not going to stay healthy. Number two, not going to generate a safe, healthy supply of food for the consumer. And so everything that I do is about how do I minimize the stress of this food animal? They won't be reproductive. The first thing that fails is in is reproduction if there's any level of stress because it's a natural instinct of the body whether it be a chicken a pig or a person how many people do you know that went on vacation and they went and spent a week in hawaii or key west wherever it is (laughs) nobody goes to medford massachusetts on vacation i guess but anyway uh, you go somewhere and with your husband or your wife and what happens nine months later tamika Right. Well, yeah. not necessarily for me, but I get it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Get what you're... laughs> but my point is that your body somehow changes because you've, you've reduced the stress influencers in your life and your body says, oh, okay, so there's no stress. Now we can reproduce. That's an oversimplification, but that's how it works. And so if 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 owners of animals do not minimize stress, they're going to shut down their reproduction. And so what I'm telling you is that if you look at what the overall efficiency of food production and food animals has been, it has continued to increase significantly. And it's because we've learned how to use the, these environments through confinement to minimize the stress so that they produce. I will tell you that I do evaluate the, the emotional status of pigs and cattle on a daily basis because I look at the numbers. And if they're not in continuing to improve their performance and improve their health and have fewer interventions to uh, deal with disease, I'm telling you that they're happy and they're doing extremely well. And we use less intervention as in antibiotics and other treatments to treat things today than we've ever used because we have them in an environment which minimizes stress. And that's what we've accomplished in American agriculture as a leader in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? And that's cool. I'm sorry, Diane, go ahead. Oh, no, you know, I was just going to say that, you know, before I entered into like this, you know, as, as an anti-poverty advocate who started learning about what was happening around food policy, uh, what I learned real quickly is that when farmers and ranchers aren't sharing their stories, and this is the same thing that we we talk about, you know, around people experiencing poverty. When you're not sharing your stories, somebody else is going to make a quick and pretty big buck off of filling in that space. And so I relate that because, you know, it's just even hearing that from Trent, I'm always learning. You know, I'm not a farmer. I'm not a rancher. Um, I I. You know, I live in a state where we import 90% of the food that we consume. We're so far removed from agriculture. And I think that what I've seen is that allows um, 
you know, people who have an agenda to, again, come into that space and then start sharing whatever story, whatever narrative it is that suits their need. And so Mm -hmm. I, I just wanted to sort of point that out because I know, you know, Tamika, you and I, we do that. Like we have to own our narratives. We have to share our stories, connect it to policy so that, again, so that nobody else controls that narrative. And so what I saw was that animal rights extremists um, have been doing a really good job at jumping into that space and really mucking up the waters, sharing Trent's story for him, having never met him, having never visited his farm, never having you know put their eyes on the animals that he cares for. So I think for me, that's one of the biggest connections. Of course, we all, you know, what connects us is that at the end of the day, we all want people to have access to safe, affordable, nutritious food. Um, and I think that the three of us, what we agree on is that's a, that's a personal choice. And I appreciate, you know, folks like yourself, Tamika, because um, I have lots of friends who are vegans who understand why I entered this and, and, and agree um, that, no, we shouldn't, because somebody has a food preference, um, we should not be forcing others into that um, by either eliminating affordable options um, or raising the cost so that it's just out of reach. So I just wanted to sort of make that correlation there because I think, again, that's another thing that connects us is we're, we're part of groups um, who others have their targets on um, and want nothing more than to share our story to make us look, just look bad. Uh, so... Part for the course. Every time Diane's here, I have to tell her, Diane, it's time for a break. Neogen is giving you a break as well. Today is the last day to get 20% off of your DNA fingerprint testing. Genomics are the future. You cannot take a chance. You need to know exactly what you're going to get in that next generation. Take a look at the genomics of your breeding animals. Neogen.com. Say Trent sent you. Then you'll get 20% off. More roll route. Second half after this. Welcome back, Roll Route Trent Loose, alongside the Red Shirt Brigade here today. Tamika Moore joining us from Florida. I don't think we mentioned that before. You are in Florida, correct, Tamika? I am, yes. From Massachusetts, where freedom is coming back after Paul Revere's ride 245 years later, you don't need to wear a mask <laughs> to go outside <laughs> in Massachusetts. <laughs> All right. Um, I just want to say, Tamika, that I thought Diane's analogy was was priceless and I, but thanks to her, I've entered the hunger world a bit, not as much as maybe I should and, and will do more in the future. But I couldn't believe the number of people that come in and talk about hunger just so that people will send them money and they don't really do anything to solve the problem of hunger. Right. And the same exact thing happens in the United States. I'll just give you an example. Diane was very involved in question three in Massachusetts and what brought us even together, which is all about how much space should a chicken have laying an egg. Well, the Humane Society of the United States learned early on that they could identify these challenges, and that is the uh, HSUS. And in 2008, they promoted a ballot initiative that was ultimately the foundation for Diane's initiative in Massachusetts, but this one was in California called Proposition 2, and I was in California 14 times in 2008 trying to educate people about this. We, the industry, spent $12 million in 2008 attempting to educate people about animal welfare, about how we take care of animals, how we minimize stress. The Humane Society of the United States 
net profit, according to their 990, was $15 million. And I share that with you because it's no different than the people in the hunger world that don't do anything to improve hunger, who continue to have their hand out saying, give us some money and we'll help. They don't do anything but sensationalize problems that they made up that don't even exist. And so I, my frustration is that you who, all you want, all you want is accurate information about how these animals are cared for. You get the propaganda from folks who are trying to ask you for money and, and folks and instead of just saying, Hey, here's what's really going on. So that's a load of information, Tamika. Mm, how is, does that, yeah. <laughs> where do we go with it from there? Well, so I think that when it, when it comes to um, ranching, farming and all of that kind of stuff, you know, we could go back and forth and all of that. I love the fact that you care for your animals. I actually uh, did some research on your farm and, and I do love the way you care for your animals. Um, I'm not a rancher, so I don't, you know, I don't know what the best thing is. Um, I just love animals and think that they should live. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, as it pertains to feeding people, you know, we have to do what we have to do. Right. Um, it has to be affordable um, for individuals, especially in low income, low income neighborhoods that don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables or to, you know, other uh, options. This is what they have. So increasing the price of it, because we're trying they're they're trying to um, take animals out of agriculture altogether all and causing all these problems. That's that's a problem. That's that's a huge problem. So um, regardless of whether I want them to live or you or whatever the case is, we sh- we need people to live. We need people to be able to afford these things. Um, so there has to be a middle ground. I, I just feel like nobody's going to get anywhere if everybody's like, I hate you. I hate you. Um, mm-hmm. No, no. I agree. You know what I mean? Like somebody there has to be a compromise and a resolute compromise at that like okay so so that people can't come back like you said with the chicken situation um i i understand it was uh that they wanted a certain amount of space for the chicken and then came back that they actually needed less space or something and now they're trying to get it changed again and all of this stuff it's really just for money in any part of our economy in any uh organization or nonprofits and, and uh, politics everything people are always out for money that's the problem in our country a, a big one greedy but um you know so you're gonna get that on in, in in any angle any part of this but there has to be a resolute um you know something something resolute some type of legislation some type of something set in stone to where they can't just come in and say oh now this is not good enough you know there has to be a middle ground and there has to be a give on both sides in order for that to, to be accomplished. Like even if um, with the chickens, I'm going to use the chickens because that's what I've been. Because <laughs> they don't have feelings and they won't have their feelings hurt if we talk about them. Go ahead. No, they might love each other. I don't know. But <laughs> either way. <laughs> either uh, way. They love each other if they're getting what they want. That's how they work. That's how yeah. all animals work. Hey, I, I listen, my thing, it's a, a living thing, right? So that's why there's people that fight for them, period, because they're a living thing. It's part of, um, you know, our, our earth and we should all be able to live in harmony, whether even as a rancher, even as a consumer, being whatever, everybody should be able to live in harmony. And I, I love animals. So I think that they should be able to live in harmony as well. However, 
if they're meant to feed uh, us or what have you, because I know that there's uh, the the broiler chickens. Mm-hmm. They're for mm-hmm. feeding people, right? Broiler chickens are what end up on your plate as fried chicken um, or chicken breast, whatever you're. I prefer the thigh. The egg laying chickens are the ones who give you the eggs on a daily basis. Right, right, and they live longer, from what I was reading. Right. Yes, correct. So, so my thing is right for uh, what I was researching is like what's a fully mature chicken? I, I don't know what the, the fifty fully days. Mature, whose days? Fifty days. Fifty days. Okay, so I, what I was uh, reading, on a broiler chicken. Yeah, I was reading six to eight weeks. Six to eight weeks for fully. I know that most broiler chickens are. Um, close to 50 days. Yeah, it's it's six six weeks, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I, I'm, I, I told you, I don't know. I just know what I've been like researching to try right. and help the situation. You know, um, I, I care enough to try to be a middleman, to try. And, and I think that if other individuals like myself would come forward and try to, to be a middleman in this, I don't have to agree with killing animals. But I do agree that people need to eat. And it's that's my choice. I don't want to kill animals. I don't want to eat them. Okay. That's my choice. Other people aren't like that. We've been eating animals since caveman days or whatever. People have been eating animals forever. So it is what it is. How do we find a common ground is my thing. You know, so. Oh, I, I, I want to just put an amendment on that. <clears throat> Excuse me, because so many people talk about, well, we have to eat the animals to survive. They provide beyond the nutrition 128 life-saving pharmaceuticals every one of these little gadgets that we now carry in our pocket or wherever we carry it are made possible thanks to an animal but the one component that gets left out of the equation to me can i just want what experience you've had with this is that without animals the planet is not healthy because all animals eat plants even a chicken, they eat corn, is produced. And the U.S. corn crop produces four times more benefit to the uh, ecosystem from a conversion of carbon dioxide into oxygen four times more than the Amazon rainforest. And nobody ever talks about that. Wow. So animals must have plants. Plants consume, i.e., greenhouse gases, and it keeps the world working. And, oh, by the way, animals poop. And the nutrition coming from their poop continues to replenish the soil because it all comes back, whether it's plant or animal, it all comes back to soil health. And the value of animals in terms of soil health, it continually gets overlooked. Because if we don't use uh, animals to improve soil health, we use petroleum products. And I'm not negative on petroleum products, but most of the world hates petroleum products. So you have to either use nutrition for soil health to come from animals or i.e. natural gas, urea, whatever the case may be, let's make a choice. But the only reason I walk down that path is that I want people to understand that not only are animals important for human health, they're important for planet health. And right now they've been cast a very negative shadow on the impact to planet health. Without animals, the earth ceases to exist. Well, of course. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, if, if, I don't know who doesn't know that, but that makes absolute sense to me, you know, um, depending on what your belief system is, animals were here before we were. So, I mean, they've been around for quite a long time and we absolutely need them um, for sustainability, for sure. Um, 
One other point that you brought up that I want to just expand upon, and I think Diane can attest to this with her own personal experiences, and that is you said that we need to take care of the animals properly, which I agree with 100%, but the food also needs to be affordable. Yes. As you have people who live in cubicles instead of on farms, designing farm programs, i.e. animal care standards, food costs continue to go up. When the farmer is designing the animal care standard, the price of food goes down. And that's why Diana has been such a champion that I, I respect and I love to work with is because she's that fully comes up under to an understanding that she has it. I don't think anybody else has in this country, even a farmer. She understands that better. Mm-hmm. I'm giving yeah. you kudos, Diane. Well, thank yeah, you. I agree. No, I, I agree with her though. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, ways it, as, as my son said to me when I, when I was telling, explaining to him what we were going to do here this morning and he said, Oh, collide the sides. Um, you know, just really just sort of bring folks together, smash, collide, and see where you wind up. And I think that we have some really uh, great opportunities to collide the sides on this issue um, around hunger. And this week, for folks that don't know, uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, who's here. From uh, Diane, the- don't mm-hmm. do that. Yes. Okay. Because you know what's going to happen? You're going to have gonna to be. Break. Yeah. You're going to be in the middle of a great story, and I'm going to have to say, Diane. <laughs> I'll hold but, it. But, so I'll come to you right out of the break. But I do have one minute, and I, I want to I want to address that because I love the term "collide the sides," but yet to make at the end of the day, we recognize we're all in this. We're all on the same side. We want to take care of the land, the livestock, and improve human lives and improve the planet along the way. Facts. Yes, but how do we get everybody to realize that? That's the thing. Is getting everybody to realize that we are on the same side. Mm-hmm. That that the the people that are fighting against you guys, that's not everybody. That's not everybody. That's most of those people in those cubicles. I'm not fighting against you. You know, I think that we should be able to come up with something that works for everyone, though. You know, um, that's that's really. I don't want to keep on going because I know you're gonna go to break. And we're gonna go to a break with that. <laughs> Reminding you that there's no colliding of the siding when it comes to certified Piedmontese. Everybody who's a part of the system can be part of reaping the rewards of generating something that the consumer loves to produce. And I'm, excuse me, the consumer loves to eat. It is called the certified Piedmontese system. It's characteristic that sets it apart is the tenderness aspect. And we need more cattlemen to be a part of that system. Utilizing that neogen technology I spoke of earlier, we know that the myostatin gene is present and that will generate a more tender beef eating experience. Details by finding Marlon Will through the website, LoneCreekCattleCode.com. Diane's up when we get back to the last segment of Roll Route. Already the last segment after this. Welcome back to the Collide the Sides version of <laughs> Roll Route. Thanks to Diane Sullivan. To my son. <laughs> you made him, so we're going to give you credit for it. Yes, I did. That, okay. that was a labor of love. <laughs> oh, I like that concept right there. That was a good one, Diane. <laughs> All right. So I'm not sure you should call it a labor, though. But anyway, beside the point, you have a, a, a burr under your saddle, I say, I take it. A what? 
<laughs> oh, that was priceless. A burr <laughs> under your saddle. So when you're riding your horse and there's a burr under the saddle, the horse is not happy. If the horse is not happy, you're not happy. So oh. it's got to be a part. You have a colliding of the sides because the horse is thinking, <laughs> I got to get rid of whatever's spurring me under my saddle. And it's like, eject. And I you think it's a, her. Right. Uh-huh. You have a burr under your saddle. I have several. Um, and so, <laughs> well, let's get them out. I don't yes. want to get bucked off. Um, so, you know, for folks that may not know, um, you know, of course, I'm from Massachusetts. And while I'm not in his district, I am uh, very proud that and, and glad that we have uh, from Massachusetts chairman, uh, the chair of the rules committee uh, down in D.C., Jim McGovern. And uh, Congressman McGovern has been a longtime anti-hunger advocate. He's probably uh, one of the things he's best known for down in D.C. is taking the lead on anti-hunger issues. And so he is uh, in the process right now looking at uh, filing a bill that would create a White House conference on hunger, um, something that was done 50 years ago. Um, and from what I understand, you know, of course, you know, 50 years ago, those of us with lived experience uh, weren't invited to the table. And while I haven't seen the bill, there was a hearing on Wednesday um, to sort of kick this off. And this will be a campaign to end hunger in America by 2030. And so I want to take a moment um, and I'll be, you know, working with folks on on making sure that people with lived experience are engaged and in part of the process. But I would love for the farmers and ranchers in America to uh, reach out to the rules committee and if you go to rules.house.gov, so again, rules.house.gov, and you'll navigate and you can find um, a submission form. And the chairman is and his staff are looking for people um, who have solutions around hunger. How do we end hunger in America? Well, when we stop attacking our farmers and ranchers and making it more difficult for them to produce and therefore raising the cost of the food. So I want to put it out there. Um, I really would, and I'm going to try to do some more campaigning around this. We need our farmers and ranchers to weigh in on how we'll go about ending hunger in America by 2030. And, you know, again, this, this will be a colliding of the size, a colliding the size if we get it right. If we get the right people in the room, too often when we're talking about hunger, the two biggest stakeholder groups, which are the farmers and ranchers who feed us and the low-income consumers who cannot afford to eat, are not often invited into the space. We are too often pushed out of the, the anti-hunger policy decision-making process. Now, I'm thrilled that we're making headway, particularly around engaging people with lived experience of hunger. I need to see more of this. I need the anti-hunger community and the agricultural world colliding sides because until and unless we do that, we will not end hunger in America. And until and, uh, and it's only when we end hunger in America and figure it out here that we can have even a greater impact across the world. So again, <clears throat> to all of your listeners, please take a moment to fill out that form, rules.house.gov. What are, what are the solutions that you have to ending hunger? And please share your stories about how difficult it has been when you're being attacked by animal rights extremists who are very cleverly, and, and you know, Tamika, it was... You know, we need, yes, we need a solution. And and I love how you pointed out that it needs to be resolute because we've talked about this, how they'll go to one state and create one standard, go to another state, create another standard. And as Trent pointed out, yes, they're spending money, but they're also profiting every step along the way. We have got to call them out for that type of, 
it's it's manipulative as far as I'm concerned. And, I, and I'm surprised that a nonprofit organization like that is allowed to stand up as it does. And so we've got to get them to, you know, we need the, the research, stronger research on what what are the impacts that these groups are having on the cost of food? We need that directly related because they will go about, they came to Massachusetts, they lied about what the cost would be, what the economic impact on people would be. And now they're actually negotiating for less space for hens because they made our standard different from the industry standard. So come January 2022, when this law goes into effect, because here's another part of what they do is they came to my state in 2016, but they don't put it into effect until 2022. So this several years and sometimes voters' memories are very short. So when Massachusetts consumers go in January and they're either A, finding no egg supply on the grocery store shelves or B, finding that they can't afford them or that they're having to sacrifice other things in their in their grocery cart, they won't even realize that they have done it to themselves. And so this is, again, why we need low-income people who have experience with hunger and farmers and ranchers coming together with, with nobody else's agenda, nobody else's political agenda, coming together, focusing on how do these two groups take our seat at the table and when, it, when it comes to how do we ensure that every person in America has access to safe, affordable, and nutritious food? Tamika, do you see why I didn't let her go into that before the break? Oh, I already knew. Yeah. So that was priceless, Diana. It's perfect spot on. But you also just described why they need to continue to have a campaign, why they make the, the standard going to be implemented in six years because the animal rights group will have another campaign before the six years to change it because the only way they make money is to constantly be campaigning. Right. And, they, and, who, and who pays the price for that? Not the farmer. The farmer finds a way to deal with whatever ridiculous notion somebody comes up with. It's the consumer who continues to pay the price unnecessarily because somebody sitting in a cubicle is reaping your your food dollars away from you. That happens on so many different planes in our country. There's people that are making laws that affect impoverished neighborhoods that have never lived in one. Right. That's something that happens all the time here, unfortunately. But to... To what you were just saying, Diane, um, putting everyone in the same room, I I wonder if it would be good to have um, vegans involved in that as well. Some somebody that can really hear, like how I'm doing research. People don't, you know, tend to do that. You know, they they run into things ignorant. What if we got everyone in the room and helped everyone understand, like, hey, what you're doing? It's not just affecting the ranchers or the animals. It's affecting human beings. Like, you know, so, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, have everybody, instead of just the consumer and just the ranchers, mm -hmm. how about we have somebody from the other end as well, you know, involved in some of these those conversations so that they can see the effect that they're having on their fellow man, on their, their fellow people they can see it tamika you know they, they were in california they raised the cost of eggs there they saw all the headlines Tri tripled, by, by the way it tripled oh my god the cost yeah. of eggs per dozen it, tripled and, in california and they lie about it like they're That's you crazy. know you know yeah. the thing about like they're not going to hold themselves accountable because they're not you know they're not honest about it and again you know to the point that just after and i didn't realize this as the campaign manager for the opposition um, just after the campaign ended, the Humane Society of the United States and the egg industry got together. Nobody contacted Diane. They got together and negotiated what they, how they could go about fixing it. Because 
what what and again we're in a we're in a bad situation here in Massachusetts where we're such a small state we import 90% of the food that we consume we don't produce our own eggs you know there are certainly our farmers here i don't you know we we do grow food um but they they're not going to be able to supply the entire state so we're this standout um that that egg producers are not going to produce for uh, i want to ask both of you a question and I assume I know the answer, but, you know, my mother told me never assume because it doesn't make me look good. The last six weeks, I've been engrossed in educating people about 30 by 30. Do either one of you know what that means? No. That's is that the that's the UN. Yeah. Diane is on the right path. So I, I, I'm thinking of it right now, Diane, because you mentioned and Chairman McGovern's concept about re- reducing or eliminating poverty by or hunger by 2030. Ending it. Yeah. Well, that's that's a fairy tale as long as politicians are involved. Right. Uh, if a farmer and the consumer could sit down and negotiate this deal, we'd have it fixed. But beyond my point, uh, January 27th, Biden signs executive order. Uh, it's. 57 page executive order, but one component of that is that by 2030, 30% of the land and oceans will be taken out of production and put in its natural state for climate change mitigation. Let me put that in context for you. It, it very clearly states that they want productive lands that are currently producing food to be taken out of production. The United States government currently owns 30% of the landmass in the, in the nation. Another 30% would mean that the federal government would control 60% of the land mass in the United States, take it out of production. Diane, how are we going to end uh, end hunger by 2030 if at the same time the same government is talking about taking 60% of the land that produces food out of production? Well, this is why when this bill passes and the White House conference is set up, that you and I and others like us need to be in the room in asking these questions and really pushing back. And, and, you know, when you think about, you know, even just yesterday, you know, I, I, I'm in a couple of ad groups on Facebook and, you know, somebody said, oh yeah, this push towards plant-based and the response from the group is, you know, farmers and ranchers like, oh, these idiots. And, you right. know, that gains us so much ground, you know, and we can't <clears throat> stay, we can't stay in these silos. And, and I, and I understand that there, it's not just political divide. Um, there, there is that, that tension, you know, when we like the racial tension, like we, we have to be able to come together, come in the same room, be respectful and really hear about each other's lived experiences. And, and, and I think, you know, and Tamika, you reference, like, we just don't do that mm. these days. And so I, I just still, and I, you know, I'm Tamika, I'm not opposed to having others in the room, but I, I think that, you know, these are the two stakeholder groups that we are purposefully divided. There, there are other, you know, sort of factors going into play that there's this intent that if these two groups, we're talking about 50 million, you know, people who have experience with hunger, plus maybe others who have had experienced hunger 10 years ago who still connect and know what it's like. Mm-hmm. And, and all of the farmers and ranchers, how much power is there? Right. Tamika, Tamika, you get yes. final 30 seconds today. Okay, that's awesome. Um, because I wanted to actually touch on that, the, the government part of this. Um, I think that we all know that the Senate Agriculture Committee is who is in uh, charge of uh, dispersing the funds to farmers and manufacturing companies and so on. 
I think a, a lot of also uh, a lot of what we're going through is a trickle down from that. Most of the funding does not go to the farmers. Like, how do we change that? How do we get more funding? We, we, to we the don't farmers? want funding. We want we want fair market price. We don't want funding. And we will continue this because, Tamika, yeah. we are going to do it again. Yes. We've journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. All three of us remind you that all roads lead to a rural route.